Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with artistic conflict transformer John Paul Lederach and conflict transforming artist America Ferreira. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Thank you. I had no idea what Crystal had in mind when she said haiku Monday morning. So this is titled Monday Haikus. The story is told of the master Basho and his disciple Kikaku. Of the morning that Kikaku came back from the fields and said, I have written a haiku. And Basho invited him, they sat, and he read the haiku. Take a pair of wings from a dragonfly, you would make a pepper pod. Five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables, perfect haiku. Basho said, this is not a haiku. You killed the dragonfly. The haiku is, Add a pair of wings to a pepper pod. You would make a dragon fly. (laughs) Near the end of his life, Basho said, across all these years, I have only written but four or five haikus. What an extraordinary thing to say for a man who probably could write 15 or 20 in a single morning, who practiced it for decades. I've often wondered what he might have meant. Perhaps it's this, that he understood haiku as a practice that was to notice the ways that you might capture the wonder of the human experience in the simplest of terms. It combines the beginner's mind, what we might call joy, with ancient wisdom that we might call Patience. How do you hold joy and patience? Particularly when things fall apart and harm burrows in. At a certain time in my peace-building journey, sitting close to and with human suffering, little by little, I was experiencing a deadening of my soul. 
Sometimes we call this burnout. The ancestor presence of Basho arrived unexpectedly. It's amazing how something you learn in the second grade could become the light that enlivens the spirit. As an adult second grader, as an adult second grader, my rediscovery was in understanding haiku as a contemplative practice. The seeking of the haiku attitude, that is, to prepare yourself to be touched by beauty. The noticing of the haiku moment, that is the aha, when the world is revealed for what it is. And that simple form, that 575, that was landed on and experienced because it could be said in a single breath. So I started writing haiku and I never stopped. Finger tapping choreography of life. If you ever see me walking and you see me tapping, it's because there's haikus all around you. Over time I found that haiku was a traveling compass that holds a very strange needle. It's not interested in north. It spins wildly as long as you busy your way through life. And it only slows and points when you slow enough to notice. I'm learning to listen in haiku, in conflicts, in conversations, in office hours. I sometimes take meeting notes in haiku. <laughs> I once got so tired of writing trip reports that I submitted a haiku as my report. <laughs> a very small note of advice, this strategy did not seem to translate into further funding. But my soul felt whole. <laughs> and it actually became a practice. Can you capture the whole of a trip in a single haiku? Could you capture the whole of this weekend in a 575? Sometimes I cheat, and I add a title. <laughs> they are usually very long. <laughs> Seeking joy and patience could also describe my wandering in the back country, in that maze of those poorly marked trails in the academic wilderness. I discovered there that we have no empirical evidence that being more serious leads to greater insight into the human condition than being playful. 
There is, however, growing empirical evidence that being playful opens toward the ever-elusive, supple heart. I don't much hashtag. <laughs> Sorry, Aaron. I don't much hashtag. In fact, uh, I'll confess, I've been trying to form an organization that carries the title, Luddites of the World Unite. <laughs> so far, according to Seth, I have nobody signed up. But I do geotag, which we could call a haiku tag. A haiku tag, being awake enough that you can hear when your haiku compass needle has stopped. And you notice where you are, who you are with, and the meaning of the moment. This will have something to do with your journey. So let me geotag a few haikus. Tajikistan. Gods and men love maps. They draw borders with pens that split lives like an axe. Belfast. Maybe, he says, this is as good as it will get. Peaceful bigotry. Sister Mary's Northern Uganda. For all the children, we smile amidst the suffering to give them courage. Lake Dillon, Colorado. Maybe this is love. To see and reflect beauty without a word. Yangon, black hair, yellow rose. She gazed across the lake, wingless, soaring flight. Burma border people, don't Ask the mountain to move. Just take a pebble each time you visit. Inside the P.W. Ackerman pen shop in The Hague, the Netherlands, with a really expensive Mont Blanc in hand. <laughs> pen tryouts today. The wells dry, but sun rises. Scribble on, my friend. Let me say that if you are ever in an important big airport with a lot of layover boredom, please go to the Mont Blanc pen store. <laughs> Saunter in as if the world is at your beck and call. It is. Ask to see the latest 
biggest pen they have. <laughs> Ask for a blank sheet of white paper, 20 or 30 pound preference. <laughs> Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. Write a single haiku. If one does not land, just recall a favorite line. The arc of moral history is long, but it bends toward justice. <laughs> Return the pen and say, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Smile. Offer gratitude. Leave the poem. We never know, really, where change begins. Geotag, 1440 days, seven haikus, numbered. One, stop, sit, light, wine, bread, tender Shabbat Shalomness, braided as we are. Two, proximate to pain, experiential divides demand our fierce love. Three, wild and unruly, <laughs> quiet enough to be held, silence between words. Number four, today, wide awake, America, patience, Eula. America, patience, Eula, spoke and blessed me. Five, when shards fly and flee, supple hearts, forests, and seas hold space for babies. Six, fear will not leave. Assurances never suffice. Invite fear to dance. With all this in mind, I offer this haiku to Krista and that on being team. Number seven, with a title. <laughs> Grandma's recipe for the numbed soul blues. Just take a snippet from Krista Tippett <laughs> and bake a sweet bee pie. Thank you very much.
I'll sit down. I'm in the right chair this time. <laughs> I, uh, I can't believe it's the last morning, but I feel so full. I don't know if we can, t I couldn't take much more. <laughs> we have to now go and process this. Uh, just, um, so we are, we are going to finish on time because people have to leave, and we, we'll finish somewhere between 11 and 11.30. Yeah, and we should be able to do that. Um, and so I just want to say, so what's going to happen next is we will have a conversation. And then David White is going to give us some final poetry. And then I'm going to come back up after that and do some closing remarks and also invite all of my colleagues up onto the stage with me so we can all look at you and say goodbye. Um, so let's begin. Uh, I've seen him do this before, like at convenings, the conversational convening. And it is so magical in that phrase of Oliver Wendell Holmes, mm -hmm. the simplicity on the other side of complexity. And I think all of us in this room, we're, we're people who deal in complexity and actually love complexity. And then there is this thing that, that we bump into, this other reality which is also so sustaining to be able to cut through to that. And that's also what you've taught me haiku can do. Um, so John Paul Lederach is one of the wisest and most pragmatic people in our world. He has worked on front lines of conflict and crisis from Nepal to Tajikistan to Northern Ireland to Colombia. He works at how social transformation can happen in generational time. I remember him saying to me, I don't take on any projects these days where people are not committed to at least 10 years. That is un-American. <laughs> right? Like we, that just takes us way outside the way we think and act. And it's so liberating. Mm. But what you've also learned is it's necessary the human change that makes social transformation possible takes longer than we want it to. But if we work against that, we waste time. So, so that's what he does. And I still remember talking to you all those years ago, and Colombia was one of these places that was, was no end in sight. And the other day I was talking to you, and you had to get off our meeting because you were on a conference call and the rebels were there. <laughs> but because they are now entering into a peace agreement, and now the hard work of peace begins, right? But um, from John Paul, I've, I've, I've late, re recently picked up this phrase, social courage. I really love that phrase. Um, that's what I want to have, and I want us to share with each other. Um, and then we have America Ferreira, who is on some of our very present American front lines of danger and reckoning and social like call, this call to social courage. Do we, do we claim this or not? Um, she, you know, these are both, um, and, you know, and, a few, and, it's so I, and I, you know, I think I, another phrase I've been using lately is social artistry, social arts. And I feel like you also are a bearer of that, like a teacher of that. 
Um, and it, but but you've and you've done it organically by bringing together these different parts of yourself. Mm. Um, being an artist leader, um, around, and also just by virtue of being yourself, you end up in yourself grappling with a lot of the pain and fear and divisions um, and challenges that mark this American moment around women, immigration, race, socioeconomic well-being. Um, one thing you've said about yourself, I am the daughter of two immigrants who worked several jobs to keep food on the table and the lights on. And by the way, we still found joy in life, we still loved people, and had relationships and breakups. <laughs> Something John Paul has said about himself, which I'm going to, I printed it out. My team will tell you I'm like the least visual person in the world, but like I printed out, this is what it looks like on the page, right? It's a poem. <laughs> the Parasite. I have traveled most of the globe on the backs of people whose lives are held together by the wars they fight. So what we have here is an artistic conflict transformer and a conflict-transforming artist. <laughs> um, and unlike everybody else who's been up here this week, um, I have never asked America about the religious or spiritual background of her childhood. <laughs> so you actually get the real question. Um, do you mind just asking it fully? Because I've been waiting for this for Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like I've spent a lot of time in my car rehearsing this answer and I would just I really just want to hear it <laughs> you know I also always try to I always try to it's not it never comes out canned like I really always try to say it fresh and mean it fresh so but we're so, so okay I already started talking okay <laughs> So America, um, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in. Okay, look, I'm. I'm. <laughs> All right, don't laugh. Um, I wonder how you um, would start to talk about the religious and spiritual background of your life, of your childhood, like whatever, whatever those words mean for you. I love that. <laughs> I really have waited so long. Um, and last night thought, oh God, I don't have an answer. Um, that's not true. I have an answer. Um, I, you know, I was thinking about it uh, all weekend and, and, and last night, and I, I feel like the, the, the simple sort of shortest explanation of the spiritual background of my childhood is sort of this groping in the dark. Um, my, my parents are immigrants from Honduras. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. My mother was very skeptical of religion and the Catholic Church, and she'd left a country she felt was um, hopeless when she left. Um, and, and so I was never taught how to pray, right? And I was never taught what God was. And, um, and yet, I remember making up my own form of praying by the time I was six years old. I would lie in bed and just ask God to protect um, my mother, my, my siblings, you know, that my mother would come home safe from work on the night she worked one of her three jobs very late. And um, 
so, so there was a, there was sort of so early on a seeking, and um, and <laughs> there I. Um, by the time I was nine years old, I was the one of the six of my siblings who let the Jehovah's Witness in on Saturday morning and, <laughs> and sat at the dining table with my private Jehovah's Witness tutor. Um, and, and my mom was at work on the weekend morning, so she even it wasn't there to kick her out. So I would sit there for, for on Saturday mornings going through the most gorgeous book of Bible stories I'd ever seen. Um, and, and eventually, you know, she couldn't answer my question about dinosaurs, and it really upset me. <laughs> so I, so I, I stopped answering the door, and, um, and I just wait until she stopped knocking, and I really didn't want to give her the book back. And I kept the book, and, and that was sort of just so early on, I realized no one gave me a roadmap. No one, no one taught me how to talk to God or what God was, but... So early on, I was seeking and seeking in the dark, and and then to answer the question of of, of this gathering of how how does that relate to now and this moment? Um, I think it's served me really well because um, this moment has felt like darkness um, for years now, um, as a woman, as a person of color, as a patriot, as someone who loves this country. Um, it's felt like darkness, and my, my now dear friend, Valerie Kaur, a Sikh human rights activist, I don't know if anybody knows her, um, gave this beautiful speech the, on the evening of um, New Year's Eve after the election in 2016, and she said something like, um, what if this is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? And America is a country waiting to be birthed, and we are being called to breathe and to push. And, and, I, and it changed that, the whole context of the darkness I was feeling. And I thought, I can do this. I know how to do this. I know how to grope in the dark without a roadmap. And so that's sort of the element that is with me right now in this time. Um. Wow. <laughs> so. John Paul, how, how would you, I wonder, um, I know about, you know, your Mennonite background and how that flowed into what you became, but just in this moment, what, is there something in your spiritual, the spiritual background of your life, also perhaps just what has emerged through your vocation that is especially present to you? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I suppose that with time and exposure to a lot of these situations that have that deep level of darkness and finding ways to seek the light, you, you open up, at least I found that to be true for me, you opened up to uh, any of the sources that begin to shed light, whether it's from the daily conversation all the way up to, you know, I sometimes consider myself a well, you heard a bit this morning, uh, you know, um, a Mennonite who writes haikus and studies contemplative Buddhism, <laughs> yeah. who loves Sufism, um, and listens carefully 
for the divine and the everyday because it's miraculous. Um, so sometimes the formal structures and shapes that I grew up with, um, I, I want to always take a, a sense of gratitude and deep appreciation for having had uh, a caring, loving community that made community serious. And uh, I also don't want to feel bound by boundaries that sometimes our communities can create. I'm, I'm interested in boundaryless identity. <laughs> and so how do you, how do you find that uh, meaningful weave that is expansive? And that's um, sometimes uh, understood and sometimes not well understood by those who find more meaning in keeping um, the gates a bit more closed. So it's, a, it's, an, ongoing, it's an ongoing love affair. Yeah. An ongoing love affair with my own community and beyond. Because and love affairs do have turbulence. Yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah. Um, you've spent um, so much of your career like in many countries, and um, and this this moment of tumult is actually global. I mean, there's a sense in which what's happening here is our 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 mm. manifestation. But we're everybody in this room, and we're not all from America. But but um, you know, here here we are. Um, and I just wonder if, and I think we 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 feel like we have. I, th I think we feel like we have become like we used to look at other places mm -hmm. in our divisions and the kind of the danger of where that might where they might go. And I just wonder if you have been surprised at what's happened in this country or what. You know, how you see this in the context of everything you've seen in terms of social tumult across the years. Yeah. Well, there, there's a part of... Um, surprise would be that it's totally unexpected. And I think uh, any of us who've uh, cared for the struggle for good and uh, just careful relationships knows that the deep patterns that we have in this country, you know, it took us a long time to get from uh, the writing of a constitution to the Civil War. It's taking a long time to come to the full understanding of how deep that actually was and how it's left remnants. We don't often think about, uh, um, you know, our country in reference to those 200 years. My, one of my big most uh, um, meaningful uh, mentors that I had was Elise Boulding, who was one of the pioneer women of the peace studies field. Kenneth and Elise were a Quaker couple. And Elise always, she had this, uh, she had this phrase about the 200-year present. And I think it might be useful for us to think about the current moment mm -hmm. in reference to how she would frame the 200-year present. We, we students would be walked through this very simple exercise. You can do it right now in the next two minutes. So here it comes. If you just calculate for a minute. So when she said present, she meant like past, present, future. And she's saying you live in a 200-year present. 
So if you go back to when you, at your youngest age that you can remember, who the oldest person was that held you, and then just calculate back to their birth date, roughly. You know, mine would carry from great-grandma Miller would go back into the 1850s, actually into the period close to the Civil War. And then you do the second part of the process, which is you think about the youngest member of your extended family. You know, this uh, minus two months. <laughs> but Our the younger, fourth, the fourth person on this. Panel yeah, today. exactly. But the youngest person in your extended family, and then imagine a robust life. To what decade might she or he live? And then you take that date. Might maybe it's to the end of the century. Maybe it's, uh, and you take the birth date. And you, when you bring those two together, and you look at that amount of years. Uh, it will come somewhere between 150, 180, and probably 250, depending on how you're calculating it. And then she would always say to us, once we've done all this kind of work, she would look at us and say, you were held and touched, and you will touch the lives of people that cover a 200-year present. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we lose sight, that there is a deep process of change that we are about, mm -hmm. and it is impatient, as one of my friends and one of the famous writers in Nicaragua said, it's impatient patience. You know, it's impatient patience. It's that persistence that I think Seth was pointing to. But it, it, it also requires a sense of standing among redwoods. They've been here a while. You know, it's a big picture. Right, right, right. And that's what I think, uh, mm. for me at least, it's really significant to give that level. So the surprise, yes, election night. I but surprise, no. Yeah. Uh, we, have, we have a ways to go, don't we? Yeah. We have a journey to take. Yeah. And we've walked into this moment, yeah. <clears throat> been walking into it for a long time. Yeah. So, um, America, you know, I, um, you, you were going to be here just as a member of the community, and I, I almost, I, I was... I almost didn't want to invite, to, I didn't want to ask you to work, you know, <laughs> to do it, to, but, but you really, you, you, have, you have a face and a voice in this, this moment. Um, and I'm just, and I've, wa you know, I've been watching you, we first, we met for the first time last summer. Um, but in this period of just the last couple of years, mm -hmm. in particular, you know, I'm curious about like the evolution of your activism because I and like the inner life of your activism because just from the outside, you know, there you were a very prominent voice in the women's march, a raised voice. Um, I also experience you to be to really be a questioning voice, right? To be a listening voice as well. And I I and asking about the world you want and the shoulders you stand on and uh I'm just curious if you'd share a little bit about like what you've been learning. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> it's um, it, that's a big, uh, really, really big part of my journey um, is this grappling with sort of boundaryless identity, and um, I, <laughs> I think a really, really big part of what has shaped me um, or my understanding of myself is. Um, the cutting off of, of my knowledge to my identity. When my parents left Honduras, they left so much behind. And 
and they didn't want to bring it with them and they didn't want to talk about it and they didn't want to, by the way, I'm also a crier, so thank you, Natalie, for, <laughs> for putting that. Not only am I a crier, I'm also seven months pregnant, so that's, I feel like I get a pass on my tears. Um, they didn't, like so many of us experience, you know, our parents, our grandparents, they, when they leave something, they leave behind things that they don't want to bring with them. And, and I had always been taught um, to, to, to worship the U.S. soil that I grew up on, that I was so blessed and I was so lucky to be born and to be raised um, on this land and, and to really just be grateful for, for being here and for being allowed to be here. And, and I really internalized that and I was the most earnest American named America there was. And, <laughs> and, um, and it really wasn't until um, very recently, uh, probably about eight years ago, that I traveled to Honduras for the first time in my life. Wow. So, you know, stepped foot on the land that, that, that I knew I had some connection to, but really was only in my imagination. And um, I, I, I was so um, taken by the unexpected feeling of tragedy, of the tragedy of immigration. I had never been given the opportunity to mourn what had been lost in that immigration. I'd only been told to, to be grateful and to be glad and to be excited that, that I didn't grow up in a war-torn, corrupt um, country. Um, and, and so that was, a, um, that was a moment where I realized that I had never been full in my identity because I'd never been given the opportunity to mourn what had been lost to me. Um, and how that relates to my activism is that I, I was so confused and frustrated by my activism for so long because I just wanted to be an actress. <laughs> and I, I, um, you know, I had these boundaries around what my identity was and, and I had a really hard time in college. Uh, again, going back to when you're young, I thought I'm gonna be an actress and I'm gonna be a human rights lawyer. And that made sense to me, you know, when I was in first grade. Um, and there was nothing at odds with that. And, you know, there was that first grader sort of knew to accept all of the things that she was. And when I got into college, I had this quarter life crisis um, where I thought, oh no, I've made the wrong choices. Like, the wor there's so much suffering in the world, there's so much to fix, and I'm gonna go be an actor? Like, how does that make any sense? And I had convinced myself that, that the only right thing to do was, you know, to, to make up for my 18 wasted years of life, was to quit acting and go do something that mattered. And, um, and I had a professor of peace and conflict studies um, whose office hours <laughs> I walked into and, um, and just started blubbering and crying at Professor Dave Andrus's desk saying, um, I, I, I have to give up my career. And I didn't even know he knew I was an actress. And he, he stopped and said to me that he had a, a, a young Latina female 
mentee who he'd been mentoring for three years and that she'd never really trusted him and her parents never trusted him, but for three years she'd go to coffee and sit there and whatever. And one day she said to him, do you really want to know what my life is like? And he said, yes. And she said, then come watch this movie with me. It's called Real Women Have Curves, which was the first film I ever starred in as a 17-year-old. And the character had a dream of going to college and her parents did not support that dream. She had to work in the factory to help her parents make ends meet. And he watched this movie with her and, and her friends and they said to him, you know, they'd never seen themselves reflected in the world around them. They'd never seen the culture acknowledge their existence and their struggles. And, and anyway, he was able to kind of speak to her parents specifically through this movie about supporting her wish to go to college. And what he gave me and what he imparted to me with that was that I didn't have to give up my passion, my talents, what I loved to do, to do, to do something that mattered in the world and that I could do both. Mm -hmm. And so it was the first time that I accepted, okay, maybe I'll stay in this really uncomfortable place of being a student of international relations and, and you know, going out on pilot season and, mm -hmm. and not being able to tell someone um, in a, at a cocktail party what my job was, which I just found out yesterday from Seth, is really good if you can't tell, if they can't write down what you can do, because then they can't, they can't replace you. Yeah. But I wished he would have told me that a long time ago. So, so anyway, the, the struggle has been uh, very internal and very real and, and has come around in these past few years um, in a very sort of choreographed, divinely choreographed way where I could not have imagined or scripted that I would be alive in a moment where there is this ripple in our space and time where, where artists and art and culture are so being called to step up and, mm -hmm. and, and speak from an activist heart. And mm -hmm. um, I feel like I was born for this moment. Wow. <laughs> Being called and accepting the call, right? Yeah. Right. That's that. There's been a choice there. Um, I, I uh, you know, this is so hard to prepare for, and this one just feels impossible because there's all we've there's already so much that's happened between us. I mean, I wonder, John Pollock. One of the things you learned as a professional peace builder. I mean, I think you would say that just a huge catharsis and deepening in your, your art and practice of peace building was understanding, you know, the arts. Even when we use that language, it sounds like something in a box. And also that, that we also professionalize that. But, but, the, but I've, I've, I want you to talk about it. But what I got from you is you, you in being proximate to that kind of conflict and suffering, understood that it's so often true that our deepest pain and the deepest things we have to reckon with and resolve lie in a place that words and analysis don't touch and that art, the, all the arts and just our capacity to sing 
is 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 as essential as any tool or any conversation. Absolutely. No, and now you know a lot of the emphasis when you're coming up through the formal programs. I was so so wonderful to have conversation with America and hear um, the sorts of things that she's been giving time to, uh, which is just brilliant. But when you come up to the professional side, um, well, you know, I have this running question that I've been struggling with is, I used to write a lot of poetry when I was younger, and then when I came into my um, formal PhD studies, uh, I had a 15-year hiatus, and I always wondered what was it about becoming professional that took the poetry out of me. And coming back to it, what I discovered, among other things, is a lot, a lot of what you have a capacity to be trained to do, which are very important things, but it's based quite often on analysis. And of course, the notion of analysis is that you, we know by breaking things, breaking things apart in some form or fashion. And analysis in and of itself doesn't have the heart to put things back together. So where, where, where do we find um, the capacity to think in ways that hold um, something that's a wider whole, but it's not entirely visible because it's gotten so fragmented. And it, it, the further you go down one avenue, it just doesn't have that. So you have to find ways to bridge. And, and for me, it was definitely the arts. I mean, I, the, the Moral Imagination book has the subtitle, The Arts and Soul of Building Peace, because those were the two things that I felt like um, 20 or 25 years into my work uh, were were the big pieces that were missing. You know, a, a, a tool can give you something concrete that you can um, imagine using, but a tool is not going to give you um, the persistence to know what to do when you're in a dense forest. It's not going to tell you which path to take. <laughs> it's not going to give you a sense of how you're going to come through a blustering storm. Uh, it's not going to give you the metal that when everything feels like it's been destroyed around you, um, you can't just pull out a tool. You have to have some way that it connects much more holistically. And then what, what you find, of course, is that, uh, and this was, f for me, the part that was so powerful, is that um, uh, the people who were the most inspirational were the ones who were inventing things that none of the professional world had thought about because they were, you know, like the campesinos in Medio Magdalena, you know, out of the blue, no formal training at all, hit decades of one armed group after another, and extraordinary talk given by Josue Vargas in a particular moment, and they formed this organization, and the principles of their organization start with quota. If you want to join, you agree, that you will die before you kill. Principle one, we will seek to understand those who do not understand us. And I'm thinking, that these people are artists. I mean, literally, they started the very first peace zone in all of Colombia that then spread to other parts of the, of the world, the notion that a local community can simply say, no more guns here. I mean, we have, we have, uh, capacity to say where 
the boundaries are that drugs are not permitted around schools, but we have not been able to have the genius art, artistry of these people whose lives were daily on the line, but who sought to talk to those who did not understand them and to do it in ways that was absolutely brilliant. They were artists, your, your notion of the artisans of, of mm -hmm. peace. Mm -hmm. And that's, so when I look back, one of the big questions I had was, um, where did we nourish and foster the creative imagination that permits you to bring into the world that so, something that does not now exist? Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's the real challenge of a lot of the work of, of conflict is that you're trying to bring something that does not now exist. That's the creative act. And so I think it goes back to holding these worlds together. And that's, uh, I find great inspiration in what you said. Something you said um, that just struck me as, again, simple and so important. And remember that the person in front of you is a human first and an opinion second. To be human is to story. So remember that before you was a person trying to understand their story, one of billions that make up our family. And then, you know, Mariah, um, Mariah sorry, we have a Mariah in our family. Um, America. <laughs> um, you are talking, you're part of what you call this small silent revolution in pointing the camera at the common person who is not saving the world or the world's best FBI agent, but who is just getting by and, and doing this, finding the humor and the love and the stakes and the victories and the tragedy in everyday life. Yeah. I so appreciated something that was said. I think it was Patrick. I think I'm, it's been a lot of conversations. Um, uh, so someone was saying, talking about you know, this, this notion of, of giving voice to the voiceless and how that's, to me, very flawed, mm -hmm. that, um, that, that they've always been talking, no one's been listening. Right. And, you know, yeah. uh, being raised by a single mother who, for the majority of my life, was the manager to a department of women who cleaned hotel rooms, um, I was surrounded by women who other people would think of as voiceless, as powerless, as disenfranchised. And, and they're not. They're stronger, more powerful, more solution-oriented, more solution-driven, um, more resilient than, than anyone else I've, I've ever known. And going into people's communities, into their lives, and seeing the ways in which they resist and the ways in which they find joy um, it is, is so heartening and humbling because many of us, I think, we sit in our positions of privilege feeling guilty for our privilege and we live in this idea that we have something um, that other people might not have access to but we don't often think about the things that we don't have access to, yeah. that mm -hmm. people that we would consider less privileged than ourselves somehow manage to keep at their fingertips at all times. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think so often about the dreamers and the, the, the children, essentially, in this country who led themselves, they led their own movement, 
Um, they created their own movement and they weren't waiting around for anyone to save them. Yeah. They, they realized that, that their salvation was in them stepping into their leadership and doing the most terrifying thing, which was to be visible in a world that demanded them to remain invisible. And, and as I've traveled the world and, and had firsthand experiences with these communities that are fighting for their own daily survival and their daily dignity and their daily joy, mm-hmm. um, I realized that, that, that that's what we need. <laughs> and and I, I had the pleasure of meeting Gloria Steinem um, very soon after the election, and I was still kind of stuck in my despair. And, you know, she's in her, I think, mid 80s and fabulous and asked her like how have you done it how have you done it all these years and 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 still keep going and still find hope and still wake up and do the work and she said i i talk to people (laughs) i get on the ground and i talk to the people who are saving their own lives and it gives me the strength to keep going and and so for me as somebody who has managed to procure a platform, uh, it's scary to use that platform because you feel like I have to have all the answers or, you know, how could I possibly speak if I don't have the PhD in, you know, conflict resolution or diplomacy. Um, But sometimes all we have to do is shift our attention and shift the light and allow for these people with powerful, strong voices and stories and solutions to speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's, I've found so much power in shifting that light. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, something that I, I, I talked the first day about the narrative of our time and how we tell it and the parts of it we don't tell. Something I have been so puzzled by and appalled by is the whole dreamers, the dreamers phenomenon mm. is something that has galvanized like over 75% of the country, right? In every poll, like across our party lines, it's, it has galvanized the nation as much like we are together in this. And we're not focused, like we're not paying, we're not just celebrating that and figuring out what that means as opposed to just focusing on the bargaining and stalemate and banality that comes out of Congress. I mean, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, like they are, unfortunately, the law has to be made there. But, you know, we the people, yeah. But I mean, we, we the pe- we are actually... The, the story of this is that this has actually brought many people together who did not vote together in the last election. And it, I feel like we, we, I mean, all of us, like we can't leave it to them. We do a disservice to those young people by not celebrating that thing that's happening around them. And we do a disservice to ourselves because yeah. they are us. We yes. are them. And mm-hmm. they are reminding yes. us they're giving us a reflection of what it means to be an American. They're reminding us yeah. what it is yeah. to, to stand up. And as I, as I traveled the country during the election campaigning, 
you know, I, so much of our, my, her hard work was convincing people why they should care. And then you have these dreamers whose life is at stake, who are knocking on doors, asking their fellow Americans that if you can't vote for you, vote for me. Mm-hmm. And, and they have, and they understand their civic responsibility and their civic duty to themselves and to their neighbors and to their communities. And nobody has given them a piece of paper saying that they are allowed to claim that. And they don't wait for that piece of paper. Right. They've just accepted that they're American in their hearts because that's what they know they are. And they claim that identity in ways that are, 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 are so much I think more beautiful and powerful than those of us who do have that piece of paper. Right. Um, remember right. to yeah. to claim for ourselves. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk. I want to talk to the two of you and hear from you about. I think this surfaced last night. You know, this question of um, you know, anger is a anger is a moral response. Mm. Yeah. I, and the first person who said that to me was Sister Helen Prejean. You know, who's been has spent her life um, against the death penalty and seeking forgiveness and humanization for people who have committed uh, horrendous crimes. But she's not against anger, right? She's like, anger is a moral response. And it kind of gets us this impatient patience. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, America, you're working in, in these spheres right now, these other uncoverings, right? Like the breaking of silences that have kept us apart. And I don't know, I think about, you know, John Paul, that 200-year span is so important. I also feel like the, the women's movement, right, 50 years ago, and it's another one of these things, like the March on Washington, right? We thought, we did that. Mm-hmm. And then we realize all these years we've been living, in America, you had this way of talking about it, you know, these things we've learned subtle ways to get what we want without getting angry or seeming angry. All these years, we know how to walk into a room and make everyone feel comfortable with their intelligence, not threatened by it, how to bring up great ideas that we help them think are theirs. Yeah. <laughs> you said we're trained for that from day one. And I gave away all my secrets. You gave, <laughs> you gave away your secrets. But, yeah, but so, so... How do we let anger have its righteousness and also its place in healing, right? You have to get angry before you can move past it. How do we hold that? And I just wonder how each of you, like, what is that creative tension? How do you do that? Or what are you learning about how to do that? Mm. Do you want to go? No, you go. This was what I was having a conversation, actually, with Eula. Uh, a couple of days ago. You love the haiku. Yes, you love the haiku who spoke and blessed me. Because she was asking, how can I be loving, how can I do loving kindness and, and how can I do anger? And how can I hold them together? Because mm-hmm. if I err too far on one side, uh, trouble kind of emerges. And um, yeah, it's like, it's an old country western song that said, for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditches. Um, it's, I, I, it, for me, I never understood this until um, in the 1980s, uh, you know, a decade of work in Central America. 
and very, very close to people that I cared a lot about who got, whose families were harmed. And um, my own family, we experienced a lot of things that you wouldn't sort of imagine happening. And one of the things that I discovered is if, you, if I went back and reread um, the Psalms, for example, there's a lot mm. of anger. There's a lot of rage, murderous uh, rage. rage. Yeah, an appeal, an appeal, <laughs> appeal to do stuff, yeah. you know, that seems to... And I, I struggled a lot with, with that, but I, you know, f for me, I, I suppose we all have ways that it comes and we have to find when it's unhealthy because um, there are times where... Uh, Loving kindness can be unhealthy, and there's times when anger can be unhealthy. Mm -hmm. But without them, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. Because it's this, I think, the, 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 the passion or the thirst for change necessarily has to say, what I, that haiku notion that it, the world must be revealed for what it is. And what it is, is it's creating a lot of harm. So how do you unpeel the cataracts that are blocking the ability to simply see it? And sometimes it comes up in ways that it's, it's gonna just burst. Um, and then at the same time, I am deeply convinced that change must be relationship-centered. We don't... We don't create change purely on the basis of the content of a policy. We don't create change purely on the basis of winning an argument or even winning a particular vote at a given time. Change has something to do with who we're going to choose to be together as the human family. And until we understand that, what Natalie's notion the other day about looking back at the world as this tiny little orb <laughs> where that's us. You know, what's your us? And I think that requires an imagination that, uh, this is when I was working with that notion of the moral imagination, the imagination that uh, you're in, in a, a web of relationship that includes your enemy because your grandchildren are going to be mutually affected. And that's, so how, how to hold these two, I think it's actually the art of, of everything. Social courage, I'll come back to that because I think it has a little piece on this very concretely. Courage is actually living from the heart. So the curve, the notion of where the word courage came from. In highly polarized settings, one of the ways I understand social courage is that it takes courage to reach out to things that are not known, not well understood, that may be threatening to you, that may in fact pose a threat to everything you believe. So there's, there's a certain kind of courage that it takes to reach into that unknown. But there is also a courage that is required of us, that when we see our own community dehumanizing others, that we have the courage to speak to that dehumanization. So social courage cuts in both ways. And this is sometimes the hard part, is that we, we just would like it to be one way. But then we're, we're backing away, aren't we, from the complexity. We're not willing to sit with the mess of who we are in a way that, um, you know, finds a way to speak to that clearly.
The psalm that I ended up with that was most helpful for me was Psalm 85. Truth and mercy have met together, justice and peace have kissed. You may be familiar with some of that phraseology. It was actually the psalm that was read over and over and over again to start the village-level negotiations in the east coast of Nicaragua. And when I was sitting in those locations in bombed-out churches with people who were in the same rooms who had come from different sides of a war where they had lost families and had been shifted out of a country, and they're sitting there, and the first words they hear are truth and mercy have met together. It sounds like truth and mercy are people. Peace and justice have kissed. It sounds like they're people. So I began to ask, what if truth showed up here today? (laughs) What if mercy showed up alongside of truth? And how in the world do you hold truth and mercy together? So it's not choosing one over the other, but somehow they're, they're there. That's, I think that's the real challenge, to learning to live with that tension, not avoiding it. This was exactly my question the other day to John Paul and Patrick when they were on the stage. And, and it, came from, it came from something that I've been holding and grappling with since the day after the election. Um, You know, I I agree with you, Krista. I think there are more of us who believe in our sisterhood, our brotherhood, um, uh, a notion of America that that is not based on bigotry and misogyny, or rather a future of America that we, we hope for. And so my question the day after was less, how did those people vote for Trump? It was how did we, who I believe to be the majority, where did we fail in communicating with one another what our duty in this moment was? Mm. What are the conversations and the questions we're not asking ourselves? Because clearly our, what aligns us has not been as strong um, as what aligns what won on that day. And, and so I have been asking the question, how do we define the we? How do we get into the room with the people we assume are like-hearted and like-minded? But what are the questions, the hard questions we're not really asking, which is, which is you know, why, why is it so hard for us to get into the same space and for women of color to feel welcomed in a woman's movement? Mm. You know, and yeah. you get in a room and you know, we all think we believe the same things and we wanna go right past all of the, the anger and the hurt yeah. that has been present for generations and the, and the feelings of isolation and the feelings of invisibility so that we can all just come together for a moment of victory. But that victory rings empty and hollow if we haven't done the, the work of reckoning with what we aren't asking one another. Yeah. And how could we possibly begin to reach across a bigger divide to people who so clearly their beliefs are steeped in something so visibly different if we can't even ask the hard questions with the people who we believe to be like-hearted with. Mm. Yeah, and, and those are really, really, really hard spaces to be in because you know you gather a group of people and you think this is gonna be great you know we're all so energized and we all want the same thing and then all of a sudden someone says something that makes all the black people in the room want to get up and walk out you know or somebody 
says something that, that makes me feel like, well, that doesn't include my perspective and, and, and the place I come from. You're yeah. speaking from a place that is true to you. And, and when those conversations arise, what the, well, the question that I'm grappling with is, how do we hold those questions? How do we live those questions in a way that allows them to be healed and truly reckoned with and not just glossed over so that we can put together this or put forward this united front that isn't genuinely and truly united in what aligns us? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually, I used to be really disturbed by the, all the violent psalms. Um, mm. And then I, when I studied theology and you know, got in behind that, like I, I, really, I really appreciate that, yeah. that at the heart of the Bible, this too comes before this, God. This, this and you speak this out loud. Yeah. And also when I learned that, you know, those are common prayers. And so you're not always praying just for how you feel that day. Mm -hmm. And that there are, is always somebody in the world and too many people in the world who, who are righteously full of rage. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I also wanted to say something that's been so on my heart mm. this entire weekend has been our indigenous brothers and sisters. And, um, yeah. you know, we so rarely ask our question, ask the question, like, whose land are we standing on, yeah. Yeah. you know? And, we think about reckoning with this country and the history and the past of this country, and we so rarely want to begin with the original sin yeah. Yeah. of massacre and genocide of an entire indigenous population. And they're so rarely evoked and called into these rooms um, that I think that if we really want to reckon, if we really want truth, we have to start there. Mm -hmm. yeah. What, um, what gets hard then when we start to put everything in the room that we have to reckon with is that then it starts to be overwhelming. Like, how do we begin there? Yeah. And, um, and so it feels to me like we have, to, we have to reckon with that question too. Like, how do we begin? Yeah. And not just get paralyzed. Yeah. Um, and not like carry our guilt as though that is a form of responding. Um, I wonder, and I'm not sure this is right, but I, I do want to talk about critical yeast. Mm. And I wonder if that's an image to bring into this because, um, you know, the image, what, what I've, I've learned this from you, John Paul, of, um, that when we think about how change happens, we, we do have these milestones like the March on Washington or, you know, the Women's March is one now, these the critical mass. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, it, it, feel, it feels like power when you have that many, and it is, but, you know, that many bodies on the street united somewhat. Although, yeah. you know, <laughs> in any of these gatherings, yeah. there's, there are all these conflicts going on as well. Um, but we forget that, it, that those things t are such a long time in coming and that that's not all, that's not, that's a piece of the change. Mm -hmm. And you've talked to, to me about how seeing how Reckoning comes, transformation comes. Um, that what, a, what, what happens before and during and after 
the critical mass, is the critical yeast, mm -hmm. which is human beings starting. Yeah. Starting not knowing how they're going to tackle it, but starting. Like, would you, I mean, and I, somebody said this in the room, we are critical yeast, and I, we are, right? This is a yeasty gathering. <laughs> and now everybody goes back home to be yeast. So, I mean, how yeah. do you, is that a useful image for us in terms of this challenge? Yeah. Um, absolutely. So, the, among the many things that I have a tendency to um, have some bias towards, so I want to just recognize that there's a lot of ways that the world changes beyond anyone's particular view. But my particular one says that I've just noticed how important it is to have small groups of people who have that quality of relationship so that they can serve in ways that begin to echo that out into larger groups. And you know it's missing if large numbers rise and dissipate like, you know, do, <laughs> the next morning by noon. Um, so, it, and we, we know that up and down of what we hope was the signs of something big that was coming and then it doesn't quite, quite go. Um, and so the critical yeast was actually just very simply that so many places where I was working there was not large numbers of people that were yet at a place, but there were these unbelievable people who refused to let it be the way it was. And when they began to move, the ways that they moved was by, um, so, it, you know, in my field we spend a lot of time understanding content, and we spend a lot of time understanding process. So we have know-how and we have know-what. These people were good at know-who. They constantly thought about the web of their relationships. In Central America, for example, the Spanish have this, the Spanish language has this wonderful phrase that if there's a, a problem, your first question is who do you know that knows? So it's this uh, notion that you're a part of a web of relationships. And that know who uh, is based on trust and what conflict destroys, what polarization separates is that it, it, it drains our, our reservoirs of trust and it pulls them back into only trusting in the narrowest sense people who already are and believe very much like you. So in the, in the, the one of the language words that I found really interesting was that if you're in the middle of some of this and you're looking for what to do next, you first think about who do you know that knows somebody? Who do you have trust in that knows somebody that has trust in? So you're not trying to go to those extremes straight away. Right. You're just trying to ask what, where, where is the minimum uh, potential of trust? And that word was actually, who is allegada? Now, I, so allegada would be a word that's built around the word llegar, which is the word uh, to arrive at. So it would be like, who is the person that sits in the doorway of the house that we would like to have a dinner meal in to see what this is actually about, mm -hmm. right? It's that kind of a, of a notion. And what, what I found pretty consistently, uh, and here I'm going to put my finger in the middle of one of the things I've heard quite a bit this weekend, you may want to give some thought to. Um, I think there's limited power in convening people to your space or to trying to create the perfect table and space. I think one of the things that I found more transformative, if you can get a, even a small number, two, three, or four, who actually travel, that is, I don't even mean literally travel, you, you, you go... 
if I'm with America and we have this approach, I, I go and spend time where she's from. And I, she's my allegada. She's the person that opens the, the doorway. Mm -hmm. And when I go, I'm not going to talk. I'm going to sit and listen. It, because I'm trying, you know, it's the space where people have a chance to say. But if we're going to another space, then there's another person who's got that point of, of entry. Now, this, this idea would be that you, you actually circulate. Mm -hmm. And in the moving around, I, mean, I remember the very first time that when I was being trained in mediation, because I spoke Spanish in Denver, I would always be called with cases that were coming up with people who had limited English. And they, my fellow mediators would say, you know, they're not coming to appointments. Duh. <laughs> you, you, where you at a lawyer's office or at a, you mm. know, you, you begin to think about what it means for people to step into that. Mm. Uh, what, what I found very early is what I learned from my Quaker mentor, Adam Curl in, in Britain, who always said mediation is about befriending. He made the old English word. It's about friendship, it's about being friends. And friends go to the place where people are. Mm. And that may not be possible to the extreme, but you have to think about the web of relationships. What are the ways that things are connected? Who has some capacity to carry that? And for me, the critical yeast is even where four, six, or eight, I would start, my view is that you start small. Uh, but you care for the quality. So it's not the quantity. It's another un-American statement of it's yours. It's not the quantity. It is, so the critical mass, actually, in physics, it's not the quantity. It's the quality of a particular interaction mm. that creates the replication of energy. Mm. But we have under-attended to. This is what was so brilliant, what you were just saying. We've under-attended to mm -hmm. creating the quality that recuperates the trust that we need to build what you call, Krista, the connective tissue. Yes. So, so that's the notion. Critical ye the yeast word was simply to create the provocation. The smallest ingredient that when well mixed. I mean, there's a lot of questions around yeast. So you, first of all, yeast, if it sits in a jar, is useless. So it's not just, it's not yeast per se. You have to take the yeast out of the jar, and then you have to prepare it. And typically, you do that with a little bit of moisture, a little bit of sugar, and not too much burning light. All right? Mm. So you're actually talking about kind of a preparatory space yeah. that we don't often want to do. And then when you put it in the mass, you mix it. But you never accept the first mix or two. You keep beating it up. You need it. I don't care if you're growing, go back down. We're going to try it again. And so just the metaphors kind of captured imagination about what actually people who were in a situation where they felt um, that there were only a few of them could understand that this may in fact be the ingredient that makes everything else grow. And how do you attend to that quality? That was really what critical yeast uh, was about. Quality of relationship. Mm. Our mutual friend, um, Jill Soloway always says, uh, we move at the speed of trust. Yeah. yeah. And that feels That's very absolutely right. related. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like when you, when you are talking about 
like right now, and this is a way you've said it, you're part of these multiple overlapping converging initiatives. <laughs> um, some of which are very well publicized now, some of which are more emergent, um, and that it's essentially leaderless. Mm. There's no great, I mean, that there's no great charismatic leader. It feels to me like a lot of what is brewing, and especially like in Hollywood, in, 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 among artists, is kind of new form social innovation. Mm. Are you are you thinking of, about it that way? Are you feeling that that there's yeah. not a path? What I'm feeling is that it's so complicated, and and that um, we're figuring it out, and that when you're at the kind of edge of what you know, and you're at the edge of what what you can see in terms of what what is evidenced about what works, it gets really uncomfortable. And, and, and we go to our, we go to what we know. And so, you know, something beautiful emerges out of uh, a moment, excitement, you know, yeast sort of reaching a point where it explodes into something great. And, and then, but then our human instincts kick in and we want to control it and we want to define it and and we want to put it in a form that we recognize and understand yeah. and and so the instinct can be who's the leader and and what's the process and who reports to whom and what's the chain of command and who gets to use the logo and you right, know you, right. you and and defining the we and that part is 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 really it's really the creative part because if we can't bring our imaginations to that moment, then we just recreate what, what we've seen and what's been created. But we're trying to push something new into the world. We're trying to bring something through that's never been brought through. And it's scary to be on that frontier. Um, and, and I've been on that frontier with some of the most intelligent, incredible humans that I know and what I can tell you is that it's uncomfortable and it's hard mm. and we have to continually remind ourselves that that our discomfort and our grappling is not a sign of failure it's a sign that we're living at the edge of our imaginations yes. and um and 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 to and what I've taken so much from this weekend is expanding the timeline the mental timeline yeah. of what we expect yeah. Um, to happen and when we expect it. And I, um, back when we met in June, um, Jana uh, Levin, who's been evoked into the room yes, a couple here. times. Yeah. Jana's not here, but no. Maria is, so she's here yeah. by proxy. Yeah. Um, you know, Jana t tells the story uh, that's basically based on the book she wrote of, of the generations that it took for Einstein's the idea that the sound of the universe could be recorded. Mm. And he, he thought that was possible, but that he, he said, we could record the sound of the universe, but it will never happen. And Einstein said that. Right. And that <laughs> he put this thing into the world that he couldn't even see imaginable. And then it took a hundred years and several other generations to bring to fruition what Einstein could imagine, but couldn't imagine possible. Yeah. And, and so there's a humility in realizing that we don't know what our place in, in the evolution of change is and that we may never get to see the sound of the universe be recorded, but we can imagine it and we can take the steps that, that 
put it into process and then let go and, and remember to be humble in the presence of, of that change. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Could I? Yeah, yeah. Well, your question on new form and how you're describing it, what, it just brings forward uh, Kenneth Boulding in this case, the other side of Elise and Kenneth, who used, always used to tell us that his understanding, one understanding of a theory of change is that if it exists, it's possible. And I had a lot of impression this weekend that the new forms are about how pockets of people are showing that something exists and that that can have kind of an echoing ripple effect because other people are looking for what might be ways that it exists. So a lot of the examples are actually the stories of how people are, are in, teachers doing this, uh, the correspondence letters, the, the, you know, the, right. the folks that are engaging in a new form of dialogue that connects uh, the coinage that she's put in a paper, by the way, <laughs> entertainment diplomacy, uh, with those who actually have been speaking but have never been listened to. New, things are yeah. taking new yeah. forms and mm -hmm. it's showing that something can exist. How then it replicates becomes the question of our, our capacity to think about how important it is to stay connected. And that, the, that in some ways the on-being tissue is uh, connecting so many interesting things that exist. Right, yes. You know, it's uh, kind of like it's there and it's invisible, but it exists. Yeah. And if it exists, it's possible. And then that yeah. gives, that actually increases kind of the level of, of hope, you know, in a lot of ways, I mm. think so. Yeah, and it was just small. I love that phrase because it always encouraged me. Uh, it, but the, you know, the challenge is what, what can you help come into existence? Um, in America, you're, you're going to have a baby. Yeah. And, and you said to me last night, and I've heard this, and this breaks my heart. I've heard more than a few young women recently say, you know, I worry about bringing a child into this. And I, um, I, I think this grandchild effect, right, that John Paul, say that again, because like this, because now we yes, have a new uh, grandchild in the making. Grandchild imagination. Right? Yeah, the yeah, grandmother's the imagination. In other words, the ability to see that grandchildren are ultimately connected. The well-being of yours is connected to the well-being of mine. I mean, that's also what you're working towards, right? Well, and then, he knows you're talking. Yeah, he's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, my daughter, I was in divinity school when Allie was born, and uh, my children do, you know, I've never listened to my podcast because this is mom's work, but Allie said to me last night, I feel like maybe, although I've never listened to your podcast, I think maybe I was at, because I was at divinity school with you, I get this. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, just I wonder, as just as we close, uh, reluctantly, if just maybe if you have questions of each other, like before we close, or I love I love yeah. bringing this generational friendship into being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, brilliant. Um, yeah, I so one of the questions that I, that I would have, I think, is. Um, how and in what ways can there be greater capacity to support 
because when you talk, it's, uh, it's an extraordinary range of, of things. And so how, how do we best imagine mm. ways to support that being um, strong and, and mm. supple yeah. that can weather the things that will likely come? That was a lot of what I, I, you know, I found myself gravitating. How, you know, how do we, how do we encourage and support this? Because I, I think the, the, the great hope I think is in the rising, the rising generations. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just clear as a bell in so many ways. Yeah, I, yeah, one thing that I, has been really on my mind is this idea of what we what we place value on and and i think you know we have uh, a certain way of thinking about change and how change happens mm-hmm. and i think that's all up in the air right now we're beginning to see that that you know even the response out of that terrible tragedy last week there's something that feels very unique about the voices that are emerging and yeah. the way they're choosing to use those voices yeah. and when these new imaginative creative um, ways of bringing about change emerge it's our duty to invest in them and to respond to them and um, I think what threw so many people off or, or what threw me off about this last election is we just thought you know that's not how it happens and that's not how it works you don't get to just say things and tell stories and people believe them and then we were proven wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> like no, that's exactly how it works. <laughs> like we tell stories and then people believe them. And 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 having been in sort of spaces with so many incredibly energized organizers, activists doing such amazing work, they're doing work that needs to be understood differently. Mm-hmm. You know, we are our, our our funders, our culture, our media, our institutions. Um, they're invested in a certain way of producing change. Mm. And we need to start shifting the way we think about how change is made and start investing in, in, in culture shift. Yeah. And there are people yeah. doing the work of deep culture shift, but we have to value it as a society. We have to value the work of culture shift with our money, with our time, with our journalism, um, with the conversations that we choose to have um, and, and lift it up when it's happening and to acknowledge, um, oh, there's this whole new, not new, but, but revealed way to us that, that we actually, this is a, this is a storytelling exercise, mm-hmm. this era we're living in. And who's telling the story better? <laughs> Mm. And, and, and who's out there trying to tell a new story, trying to tell a different story, trying to sh- shift the form of the story, and how do we get behind them? Yeah. How do we get the, behind the young people who, um, who, are, who, who understand that this isn't about um, politicians and it isn't about our elected officials? This is about the stories we tell each other and that we choose to believe. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's about that investment. Where are we going to invest our resources as a society? Yeah, terrific. (laughs) 
and I know you're saying this, but also our resource of imagination in that we believe in it, that yeah. we all decide. We, yeah. know, we know this, but we don't take it as seriously. We still believe those other arbiters of what is powerful. Mm -hmm. yeah. We have to believe that this is more powerful. Mm -hmm. This is Absolutely. real. This is as real as who gets elected president or who doesn't. That's very, yeah. that's, well, anyway, yeah. <laughs> oh, you... Yeah. Well, yeah, I have so question. many questions um, for John Paul. Mainly, like, can I have your email address? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we can keep in touch. Um, uh, but I, you know, I have so many uh, questions. Um, but I guess, you know, the... I guess the, the, the personal relationship mm -hmm. question, I guess, would be you know, what, has there been a relationship in your own life that you've built that was that unexpected relationship that shifted the way that you could see things? And if yeah. so, what did it shift? Oh, absolutely. And it's been in different places. I think the one that would come most to mind is my, uh, my very dear friend, um, Ricardo Esquibia from uh, Colombia. We've, Ricardo um, grew up in the streets because his father had leprosy in, um, in the outskirts of a little town in, in the north part of Colombia. And um, from that starting point as an Afro-Colombian to becoming a human rights lawyer, um, he... Um, and I developed a relationship because it traversed some things that, of times when he had to leave, came up to where we are so that he could have periods of safety for his family, and then going back. But the shifts always came for me with Ricardo that were basically this. You can be angry, but don't become bitter. Uh, you can be angry, but don't refuse to talk. Hmm. You can be angry, but don't forget to love. And uh, especially when I was, he's slightly my elder, by about a five, maybe eight year period. And um, there were periods where, to be honest, my anger was headed more for the bitter. <laughs> I forgot to love. Hmm. Um, and then you have this extraordinary friendship of somebody who, who's been through so much more, who just comes alongside, I love alongside, takes your arm and says, let's walk. And I think that's, for me, what shifts it is that it's a quality, so the big difference between trying to create a conversation for instrumental reasons because you have a purpose that you want to try to get somebody to do something and committing yourself to friendship even though you're deeply different in many things that life has brought that's a shift and I learned that from he would be an example among many but that for me was a very very powerful one very powerful in my life yeah. I'm so glad you're both in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Thank John you Paul Lederach and America Ferreira. Yeah.